the National Archives podcast series, Lost London Pubs, presented by Patrick Chaplin. Well, good morning, everyone. I've just recently joined the society, so, you know, obviously a new boy in town, but I would say it's a great society to join. I haven't bought slides, I haven't bought presentations and scripts. What I've done is I've gone for the old-fashioned means. I've got books and stories to look at this idea of the lost pub. I'm a historian and I've got a specialism in comparative mythology. And for the last 10 years, I've been working, developing a digital distribution center for human rights primary source video. And that means, in reality, I can bore you on history, mythology, and technology. So, how did I get into this? I think that's a, how did I actually fall into this idea of the lost pub? My wife's a sculptor, and she went last January to a book fair in London, where she was looking at using old books to do a sculpture. And she came back with an amazing little book from 1850 called The Corner Cupboard. It's absolutely packed with incredible social information. Really fascinating. So I then went down to the next book fair and came across a work by John Hissey called Touring the Eastern Counties in a Phaeton. And for those of you who don't know what a Phaeton is, it's a small carriage. And we've got this wonderful story of this English gentleman wandering around the pubs of the Eastern Counties dispensing half-crowns to scruffy urchins and, and local people who, who um, show him round the local brass rubbings in the church. But he stays in the coaching inns and he moans and he moans all the time about the advent of the railways and how it's destroyed the coaching inns. And he talks very fascinatingly at one point about driving along the highway, um, which is actually the, one of the main roads to Ely that I know quite well and for a whole afternoon seeing no other traffic because the railways have destroyed our lives. That's how I got hold of the Pub History Society because I became so fascinated in this man. I did the obvious thing, I did a Google search. <clears throat> and what, what did I find? I found Patrick Chaplin, a small article on, on Hissey in the Pub History Society. And then you think, Pub History, it's got to be for me. <laughs> so, I, I got in touch with Patrick, he very kindly came back and, and started telling me a few things about Hissy. And then I just became fascinated and I started looking at pub history and I started going to the book fair where you can pick up the books. And I brought books in so people can look at them later when we do our show and tell. And these books date from 1850, 1852, 1878, and one text there that's a from 1781. And you pick them up for two pounds. Nobody's interested in them. They're going on the bonfire. So I really advocate people getting down to these fairs and picking up these books because they're invaluable. And what I found was an amazing sort of literature on people traveling around pubs. There's a huge amount of this material. And of course there's a whole, as we have here, Cunningham's 1850 Streets of London. It's, it's absolutely filled with bits of pub history and stories. But I also found that in the sort of the research, there's continually repeated this idea of the lost pub. And I became fascinated by it because that word lost, you know, it's a sense of loss. There's an emotional, there's a clear emotional connection there. We don't say the lost estate agent or the lost town hall or the lost church, but we have 
a connection with the pub within our history and within our culture that actually is, is emotional. And it's about, for me, it's about the people. And where I started off in my journey and my love of pubs was when I was 16 years old and I used to sneak out at 10 o'clock at night with a 50p and go down the local Travellers Inn, which was a oak panel pub, old Irish uh, landlord who'd been there for years. And I used to go in there with a book, order a lemonade and sit there. And then after a few weeks, he came across to me and he said, would you like a beer, son? And I said to him, you're not old enough. He said, I know that, but you're a good lad. Come in here and you breathe. You don't cause trouble. I don't mind you having a beer. That was my first pint of Abbott Ale, which I'm sure some of you will resonate with. I've been addicted ever since. But that pub was about people. There were no jukeboxes. There wasn't even a cigarette machine. He didn't like machinery at all. And the only music was the sound of conversation continually. And that's what I grew up with. And those were the pubs that I decided I liked, to go in, meet people, and talk. And that's at the heart of this idea of the lost pub. And so I started looking through the texts and looking for the people. Where are the people? We, we talk about the pub signs. We talk about the pub architecture. We talk about all the buildings. And there are histories and stories associated with the pubs. But as with many things, it's mostly history from above as opposed to history from below. We lose a lot of the connection with the ordinary people that are actually in the pubs. And that's what I'm going to explore today. I'm going to try and take us through a little journey through the texts that I've brought and see whether we can find some sort of real sense of where the ordinary people were in these pubs and, and what they were involved with. I'm going to start with, with Hissy. Here's, here's Hissy. This is the book that started it all, and really a fantastic, a fantastic tone. And there's a moment in this one, he comes across a pub, he walks, he goes into this coaching inn and he's waxing lyrically about the beauty of the coaching inn and how the landlord looks like John Ball and you know, ruddy-faced, hearty welcome and all this sort of romantic build. Um, and he's always looking for a meal. They're always looking for a meal, these, these wealthy gentlemen. And the woman says, I'm afraid the restaurant, you know, we haven't got a restaurant. What we've got today is we've got the commercials in. So this is 1889. And he walks in to the commercials and they've got a room. And he goes in and he sits down and he realizes that he doesn't know what's actually happening here. And the commercials are commercial travelers. And they're still going around with their horses and carts, and they're spending up to three weeks on the road. And on a Saturday, because this was a Saturday, they consider it their holiday. And they meet, and they have a little society, and they have a Mr. President who welcomes in the commercial travellers. And there's a whole code of, of saying, um, as they come in, Mr. President, I'm, you know, I, you know, I'm tired from the road. I'd like to come and sit down. Please welcome, come and sit and eat the food and drink the wine. And the number one rule is no talking business. Now, in this sort of connection, we all know that one, don't we? You know, <laughs> when you get all those people, all those business people together, accountants or lawyers or whatever, or even our lost estate agents, you know, trying to stop people from talking business and sitting down, this whole sense of a holiday. But he talks with these commercial travellers, and of course they inevitably start talking to him 
about how the railways have affected their business, how they move from community to community, um, selling their wares. And that was the first moment when I started to get an insight into ordinary people, ordinary working people going about their business and what the pub actually meant to them. It was a place where they met, it was a place where they socialised after they'd, after they'd worked. Um, and they'd actually built into it a whole mythic structure, a whole ritual that goes on in the way that they, they actually use the pub. And the space was dedicated to them, it was called the commercial's room. Perhaps in the rest of the week it was, it was called something else, but there you go. And, and they, they enjoyed their food, and they enjoyed their conversations, and, and Issy and his friends went off and wandered around the village and did some brass rubbings. Well, next I find a, a book by John Bing, which is this one, which is the exactly 100 years earlier, 1789. And this is another aristocrat, basically, John Bing was, who travels around on horseback in the summer, around the pubs of Hertfordshire. <coughs> and he is moaning about the loss of culture now that people are now going abroad and traveling on the Grand Tour and coming back, as he says, with an amazing rage for opera. And how this is, and how this is been, and so in the same way Hissy's going on about the railways, Bing's going on about opera, and, and how an English gentleman need go no further than get on his horse and travel round the inns of Hertfordshire through the most amazing countryside. Now what's interesting about these two texts as well is that I would say 90% of pubs that they actually go to, I've, I've got lots of them on, found lots of them just by, simply by Googling them. They're still there. Those country pubs still exist. And the one that he really has a go about um, being, where he didn't like the quality of the food, always moaning about the food thing, didn't like the quality of the food, felt the staff were a bit surly and felt it was a bit down market for his class and his his taste. When I looked on the website, it looked like things hadn't changed too much. <laughs> <laughs> it was that classic, you know that sort of classic pub that's on the, now on a main road somewhere and you go in and you know that you're going to get a pucker pie and chips. <laughs> it looks exactly like that. Bingo every Tuesday night. So that's the, so where are the people? We've got the romance of Hissy. We've got, you know, John Bing and the food and, the, and these wealthy people going around. And this is this history from above and below. So the, the search for the people starts from that point. And then I start picking up other texts. We pick up texts like this one. And this is the 1850 Cunningham's London, which is absolutely superb. And has got well, some lovely... I don't know whether anyone can actually see, but you'll see here's the Rainbow Tavern, number 15 Fleet Street. Now most of the pubs in here are actually gone. They've disappeared. All right, we've got the Queen's Head Alley, which is named after the Queen's Head. So, um, and we, we learn here that uh, Queen Elizabeth had actually eaten in this, and she's eaten through the, these particular stories, Queen Elizabeth appears to have eaten regularly in pubs. <laughs> Her favourite dish was pork and peas. We also find that we've got 
incredible amount of clubs going on. There's a lot of clubs that are happening, and I'm sure we're all aware of this with um, Dr. Johnson, that inveterate starter of clubs. But there's a whole there's a whole use of the pub, which is once you start to get into it, and um, starts to look like an entertainment centre. In very much people are going there, they're eating, they're having food, and they're, they're forming these clubs, and they're, it's basically their entertainment. They're having food, they're having these meetings, they're talking about the politics of the day. But the record is, once again, of the middle, well, the upper class really, but the upper middle class and, and the middle class. And also, of course, the poets and the artists, the Queen's Arms Tavern, number 71 Cheapside, the second floor of the house which stretches over the passage leading to this tavern was the London lodging of John Keats. Here he wrote his magnificent, magnificent sonnet on Chapman's Homer and all the poems in his first little volume. I suppose we're not surprised to think that poets and artists are popping into the pub and then coming back and penning off a few sonnets. I don't think that's something that's, that's changed very much. We also find a story here where you just start, you start to dig in and you start to find little tiny social stories that are coming through about just ordinary people. And we've got a story here which is from 1811 of a set of murders where somebody goes out of the shop and on her return she comes back. The house was then broken open and this for Mrs. Marr, the shop boy and the girl and the child in the cradle, only human beings in the house were found murdered. A few days later, Williamson, landlord of the King's Arms public house on Old Gravel Lane, Ratcliffe Highway, is murdered by the same man. A man named Williams, the only person suspected, hanged himself in prison and was carried on a platform, placed on a high cart, past the houses of Mars and Williams, and afterwards thrown with a stake through his breast into a hole dug for the purpose where the new road crosses Cannon Street. <laughs> so we start to sort of just dig out just these little, little tiny things, but then when we find the Rummer Tavern, a famous tavern, two doors from lockets between Whitehall and Charing Cross, removed to the waterside of Charing Cross in 1710, and burnt down November the 7th, 1750. No traces exist. It was kept in Charles II's reign by Samuel Pryor, uncle of Matthew Pryor, the poet. There are poets again involved with the pubs. The Pryor family ceased to be connected with it in 1702. And there's a little bit of poetry about this, but here we find, here Jack Shepherd committed his first robbery by stealing two silver spoons. Now Jack Shepherd was a famous highwayman, and he ended up in 1724 in Newgate Prison and it was said that something like 1,400 people came to view him, in the same way people went to Bedlam, they came to view him in chains on the floor in filth and mud. This leads me then on to the Old Bailey Records, because if you're going to find these people, one of the best places to find them is in the Old Bailey Records. And for those of you who are not familiar with that resource, I really 
that is a fascinating resource to, to look at. It's online, all the trial records are there, and also you get the ordinary of Newgate doing his, his reports where he actually sits with the condemned prisoner and tries to get a confession and the story of their life. And unsurprisingly, in the 18th century, where we're seeing a massive growth of London, though, the population increased by 60% in 80 years in London at that time. Everyone's coming, they're all coming from the countryside into London, and there are certain areas of London that are, that are filled with rogues and dastardly villains of all sorts that all end up on the gibbet. But I found one, 1740, a bloke called Jewel was charged for rape and his body was taken to the surgeon's hall. Because obviously they used to cut them up afterwards um, in the ordinary routine. As one of the attendants was washing it, he perceived signs of life. Steps were taken immediately and Jewel was brought, and eventually, brought back and eventually taken away in triumph by the mob who had got wind of the affair and refused to allow the law to rehang their man. A little earlier, something of the same sort happened to John Smith, who had been hanging for five minutes during the time the hangman pulled him by the legs and used other means to put a speedy period to his life. When a reprieve arrived, he was cut down. He was then hurried away to a neighbouring tavern where restoratives were <laughs> So we go from the highwayman stealing the silver spoons and being hung to the hanged man being restored in our tavern. Unfortunately, I couldn't locate the particular tavern because I wouldn't mind drinking there myself. <laughs> so you start to sort of begin to get a feeling for, for what's going on in London and, and this word, the mob, starts to fascinate. Because there's definitely, in the 18th century, there's definitely this sense of some, I don't know, makes our hooligan, football hooligans look like you know, domestic animals, basically. There's this sort of great unwashed wandering around, and at any moment, the mob can rise. And it's always centered around inns and taverns. It's always, it's always there that this happens. So, <laughs> we have a situation in Whitefriars, and to give you an idea of what, how this mob is perceived, because obviously the people who are writing about the mob are not members of the mob themselves. Um, Whitefriars was an area where the mob had a certain sway and a certain rule. And there is a story of a, of a man coming in to Whitefriars who was trying to recover money from, from a nephew who had been defaulting on a loan. And one man in the tavern shouted, Bailiff! All right? At which point the call goes through Whitefriars, the mob arrives, and the man has to flee for his life because bailiffs are not allowed in Whitefriars. And this mob then brings us to the, the Calves Head Club. It's a tavern in Suffolk Street, which I can't identify. But you can imagine this is one of their clubs, and this gives you an idea of what's going on. And what actually happens here is that the calf's head symbolises the head of King Charles I. So these people, uh, members of the upper classes, gather and have a dinner. And the feature of the dinner is a bloodied calf's head, which symbolises 
uh, Charles I said, clasped the head of a, a large carp, which is also a joke about Charles I, plus other various heads which they proceed to eat and drink lots of toasts for, whilst proclaiming the Republican cause. And what happened was there was a riot and the mob um, nearly burnt the whole place down. And we find a letter um, dated 1735 from one of the members of the Carp's Head Club, writing, he says, I don't in the least doubt that long before this time the noise of the riots on the 30th of Jan has reached you at Oxford. And he goes on to explain that some urchins were out in the street building fires, and they said, oh, we need some firewood, and tried to get the urchins to build a fire for them within the tavern. The urchins then obviously abused these drunken toffs, and things got a little bit leery. The toffs retreated to the first floor. The mob assembles, stirred up by a, pa a known papist, a Spanish priest in the, in the place at the time, and the, the toffs end up throwing the calf's head out of the tavern at the mob, which then enrages them. They then decide but what they'll do is they'll lean out the window on the first floor and they'll give toasts to the queen and toasts to the king and toasts to the mob to try and placate them. So the mob are out there in this tavern in Suffolk Street and the toffs are doing their toasts, you can imagine them from the first floor window, when stones start coming through. And the next part of the description is some of them then decide to draw their swords in this room, in this upstairs room. There's a description of a load of drunken people, some hanging out the window, others drawing their swords, and everybody else ducking. They're saying they're going to go and sort out the mob. And outside they're baying for blood, and it's only the arrival of the, of the local um, militia that actually drives this mob away. But still, through all of this, although we see Jack Shepherd and also we see Hank, we don't actually find real people. We're once again back with toffs and poets and artists and Dr. Johnson. And we're looking at all of these, all of these pubs and taverns that have, have gone missing, but what's gone missing as well is the story, a lot of the stories of that, that sense of society and that sense of, uh, that sense of place that we know exists. That's, that's, where our, that's what I would say, that's where our emotional connection is. Because within the pubs, like my little story, it's like the rites of passage. I think some of this is changing now, but we associate pubs with much more than just somewhere where we go and drink and eat. We associate pubs with our history and our <coughs> culture and our arguments, because we're always talking politics there. But pubs change. This is the other thing. Pubs change. And when we look at um, the Belle Sauvage, do, I'm sure some people know the Belle Sauvage in uh, Ludgate Hill, which was an old coaching inn. And that illustrates how pubs actually change in a wonderful way. The, these inns had the old courtyards with the, uh, the balconies, and in Elizabethan times, certainly, and later, they were used for plays. So at the Belle Sauvage, there are records of Shakespeare and his company performing there, and very much the balconies in theatres that developed later are actually replicas of related to these coaching inns, and the way the balconies were, were formed uh, around those. So they were natural courtyards. But also, what we find is we find a lot of trades going on there. 
So the other thing that the Belle Sauvage is, is, is actually quite famous for is printing. There were printing works going on there. And of course, it's exactly on the spot where the Times newspaper was first printed. So there's a relationship uh, between these things, which is brought out in this wonderful book here, which, as you can see, has suffered grievously um, in its history. But this is from 1880 and is absolutely filled with some wonderful bits and pieces about the pub. So I know we, um, we've got pub signs coming on and later, and it says here, an incredible quantity of ink has been shed about the origin of the sign of the Belle Sauvage. And goes on with a, with a whole description of how it was called. Um, in anti-Shakespearean days, our early actors performed in inn yards, the courtyard representing the pit, the upper and lower galleries, the boxes and the gallery of the modern theatre. The Belle Sauvage, says Mr. Collier, was a favourite place for these performances. There was also a fencing school there, so there were people fencing. There's a lot of swords hanging around through the history of pubs, um, which I, I wouldn't advocate for today. But also we find another story. Yes, Nash. He had a horse, a, a character had a horse called Morocco, who once ascended the Tower of St Paul's, and on another occasion, at his master's bidding, delighted the mob, we're back to the mob again, by selecting Tarleton, the low comedian, as the greatest fool present. Banks eventually took his horse, which was shot with silver, to Rome, and the priests, frightened at the circus tricks, burned both the horse and his master for witchcraft. <laughs> I think that was a bit tough. <laughs> I think that was a bit tough. But the, the stories here of the Belle Sauvage tell of a, of a changing in that's revolving around this relationship with the coaching, but also bringing in different trades because around the, the, the lower floors of the yard they had rooms where other things were going on as well. So it was, it was much more a centre of commerce as well in many ways. And the old inn yard is now very much altered in plan from what it was in former days. Originally, it consisted of two courts. Into the outer one of these, the present archway from Ludgate Hill led. It at one period certainly contained private houses, in one of which Grinling Gibbons had lived. I don't know who Grinling Gibbons is, or... Um, the inn the, the yeah. stood around an inner court, entered by a second archway, which over about halfway up the present yard, over the archway facing the outer court was the sign of the bell, and all around the interior ran those covered galleries, so prominent a feature in London inns. And what we find also in these books, which people will be welcome to look at later, is an amazing amount of engravings. There's 136 engravings in here, and there are, there's um, pubs in White Friars, and there's pubs in Southwark that are, that are hidden away, tucked away, <coughs> within this text. So the pubs change and I think this is an important part because we talk about the lost pub but actually the pub is just part of the economic environment and like any business it continually adapts. You see that in Kissy. We see that with the changing of the railways 
and it continually adapts, it adapts to those. And that takes me to the Bridging and Topsham, which is my favourite pub in the whole world. And I always say this, last modernised, so the landlord told me in 1909. Um, doesn't have, possess a bar, it's the classic pub where everyone can talk. And I did a, a series of interviews in there because I was interviewing, oh, this was 15 years ago. And, and I interviewed a guy who was 93 years old at the time. And I was talking to him about the changes in pubs. And this is what he said, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. He said, well, of course, in the old days, he said, we had the public bar, we had the lounge bar, we had the saloon bar. And he said, what would happen is the young people would drink in the public bar, and their parents, their parents would, would drink in the saloon bar, and their grandparents would drink in the lounge bar. And whenever we got any problems with the kids in the public bar, the landlord wouldn't go to the saloon bar to the parents, but go to the grandparents and say, your grandson's causing trouble, go and sort him out. And then granddad would come in and he would say, oi, now, a young son confronted by his father after a few beers, something could kick off there. But confronted by your grandfather, you just bow your head and say, okay, granddad, and, and out you go. And he said, so this was very self-policing. I thought, well, that's quite an interesting idea, how the architecture reflects the society and the function. But what he went on to say, he said, of course, today what's happened is that with the purchase of the pubs by the big corporations, what they've done is they've knocked out those walls, and now the pubs only contain one type of person. And that's why we get all this trouble that we get in pubs, that they only cater to one particular market and they don't cater to the actual community around them when they do that. And I thought that was a really interesting insight. So the changing of what I'd say is this idea of the lost pubs, we don't really lose them. They always change and adapt. And like Kissy's coaching ends, when he, you know, he's 20 years later writing about travelling the eastern counties in his motor car, like Mr. Toad, you know, he's going round and then lauding the fact that the, these coaching ends are now coming back again. And we, and we see the continual reinvention of the pub. It isn't actually lost, it's continually reinventing itself in many ways, which leads me then just straight back to the idea that it's actually the people and the people's history and it's the communities that we attach to. It's our experience and the, and the role that they play in our lives, which is actually what we feel is lost rather than... Because we can always find the Travellers Inn or the bridge somewhere that retains that old tradition. But we, we're losing, in some sense, part of the, part of the social history of ourselves when we lose some of these pubs, and that's what we really, that's what we really hold back to. And that brings me then to this absolutely beautiful little book called The Mysteries of London, two pounds fifty. 1850, I believe we're, we're into with this. And this, this is by a chap called Reynolds, who was famous for Reynolds newspapers. Some of you might know Reynolds newspapers. But this was a radical. And what these are is these are actually um, the stories, an ongoing soap opera that were published all the time in the, in the newspapers. 
to, to bring the readers in, in the same way that Dickens published a lot of his, his stories. And it's a rather sort of dreadful story of aristocrats and poor people and robbers and, and has some interesting moments in it when people are walking around uh, the fields of Islington and, and, and you see the development of London coming along. But what's interesting about this book, what's really interesting, is that being a radical, he footnotes, he's writing, he's writing a, a novel, if you like, or a, a serialization, but he's footnoting it constantly with events that are actually going on from his radical perspective. So we've got accounts in footnotes of 200,000 people gathering on Stretton Common to protest, to protest about one thing or another to do with the government. And, and also he then carries it across into the text so that when he's footnoting something, you'll find a few pages later, there'll be a conversation in the pub where someone will be standing up and arguing within the narrative of the story and that is suddenly where you start to find, hold on a second, now I'm beginning to really find some original life. Uh, so, strangely in fiction, we find this. So we've got two rogues here. Jack Riley and Victoril Bob, mortal enemies, armed with knives, one about to kill the other, they don't know which yet, and they spend a whole afternoon and a whole evening walking around the pubs of London until they wander out into the fields of somewhere just, just past the old Kent Road, and then one kills the other. But the Bengal Arms, this is down by the Royal Exchange. The parlour at the Bengal Arms, or at least was at the time whereof we are writing, a long, low, dingy room, very dark in the daytime and indifferently lighted in the evening. It is always filled with a motley assembly of guests, and ale is the beverage most in request. While to one who indulges in a cigar, at least ten patronise the unaffected enjoyment of a clay pipe. On the present occasion, the company was numerous, the tobacco smoke hung like a dense mist in the place, the gas burners showing dimly through the pestiferous haze and the heat was intense. Jack Riley and Vitriol Bob contrived to find a room at one of these tables, to find room, sorry, at one of the tables, and a slipshod waiter supplied them in due time with a pot of ale and bread and cheese, to the discussion of which they addressed themselves in a manner affording not the slightest suspicion of the deadly enmity which existed between them. He then goes on, to go on to a man standing in the corner railing about the young girl on the throne. And what are we doing? And there's an argument then between two people and a description of all the people around the pub all shouting and joining in the argument. And in this, you suddenly, suddenly there's a little window. And suddenly you see, and it's because of the footnotes, because I've checked through the footnotes and he's He's very accurate in, in what he's reporting, and I'll give you an example of a footnote. With deep sorrow and indignation, we have frequently noticed blackguard boys and dirty vagabonds insult private soldiers in the streets. Nothing can be more reprehensible than such conduct as this, but we are sure that the British soldier is too enlightened and too generous-hearted 
to suppose that any respectable working man would treat him with indignity. So even in 1850, they're still suffering the problem of soldiers who are not being respected in public, which we've still got today. So through, through the validity of the footnotes, we're actually finding within the text this, this lost society that Bing and um, Hussey, Hussey only <coughs> hint at. So where, it, where that all comes down to then is this. Is I actually don't think that we have lost anything. I think that it's all still there. It's all still there to be found. I think that these these texts, and I, I would really advocate this strongly, to get there and save these texts. Spend an afternoon going through these shops and find these texts. You know, I've now I've now got 120. It started last January, but it is a bit compulsive. And. Um, and within these texts, trawling through, there are the real lives of people. They still exist there, and we can still connect into them in some way. And by saving them and by preserving them, we don't lose them. So the pub's never lost, it only ever changes. And it's up to us to make sure that the history is contained within those pubs is never lost. And that's essentially my presentation for you today. This event was recorded live as part of the Pub History Society Conference on the 20th of February 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.